1: In today's episode, I interview Tice Maas, the founder and CEO of Onramp.er uh, Tice went from studying law to teaching to helping blockchain startups to founding his own startup. We talked about how he met his co founders, how he came up with the idea for Onramp.er and what Onramp.er is. Uh, Onramp.er it provides wallets, exchanges, and Web three parties with easy access to fiat on ramps. Uh, they've raised $6 million so far, and we talked about how they've grown in the crypto sphere, how they raise money, uh, really architecting the product itself and how they've built what they built. So I learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. Uh, please do like, subscribe, share the podcast if you enjoy it, and please send us a recommendation if you have a guest that you want to have on. Here is Thais Mas. All right. Tice, I am excited to chat with you. I don't get to talk to people in uh, Europe or the Netherlands all that often. So I'm excited to hear both obviously what you're working on, but also life and and learning about uh, that part of the world. So yeah, why don't we, in a simplistic way, kick it off with your current foray, your founder, CEO of OnRamper, we'd love to hear more specifically what it was at the time that you started on Ramper that kind of pulled you in and what you were originally trying to accomplish in the world, uh, by creating it.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's been quite a, quite a bit of a journey, um, getting here and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. I see, I see that we're at episode 370 something, I believe. Um, or at least yeah. nearing the 400, so you've definitely been busy. So that's really cool to see. Um, yeah, the the road to Onramp has been uh, pretty interesting. Actually, my background originally isn't really in tech or engineering, as you often see. My background is in law. So all the way back to uni, I studied uh, international business law, and then I went into the world of law firms, um, big law firms really on the M&A acquisition side, IPOs, et cetera. And very quickly I realized it wasn't the environment that I would see myself working in for a long time. It was very top-down <laughs> based in terms of culture. And pretty much, I, I like to say that law firms can be a bit like dinosaurs in terms of culture uh, in that sense. And for me, there was a general lack of maybe competition based on merit, everything was based on seniority, right? And that meant if you have wanted to get your voice in on the topics generally, you know, working for five, six years before you're taking seriously. Now, to me, that didn't seem like a great prospect. So I uh, definitely had my eyes opened for other uh, things at the time. And that was also when, um, so we're talking about 2016, 17, I was writing a lot about the crypto space. Um, so I don't know if you remember those days, but the general information found online was pretty bad, um, really. And seeing as I was doing the research into crypto, just out of pure interest, like everybody starts with a little bit of investing and then you actually read up on what you're investing in. Um, when I was doing that research, I just found that writing was a pretty good way to structure thoughts generally. Um and I started combining my writing with insights from the legal space. So insights into financial law, securities laws, KYC, AML, GDPR, really the compliance, strategic compliance angle. And doing so, um, to my surprise, a lot of startups started reaching out to me. Because at the time, and now still to some extent, there was a lot of perceived legal uncertainty or just plain legal uncertainty. And... Um, And then one day you wake up and you realize, wait, uh, for fun, I've been helping all of these startups, right, on this strategic compliance, go-to-market angle. Um, But every day I wake up and I dread going to this law firm. Why don't I just quit the law firm and start monetizing uh, my own consultancy business? Um, So that's what I did. And that's really how I got started originally in the crypto space. then with that game you know seeing a lot of startups helping a lot of them but also constantly having this itch of wanting to get involved further than just the legal compliance end. um thinking ah, well maybe sometimes this can be done better that can be done better really this sort of almost slightly egocentric way of hey just let me push for doing more within your company because i think you could approach things a different way. Um, so I always had this itch to start building, uh, in a sense, uh, to really do my own thing. And that was realization number one during that time, really. And realization number two was my own time as a business model is just not scalable whatsoever, right? So I always wanted to build in crypto, and then when I met some of my original co-founders, got that opportunity, and we started uh, yeah, building in space, really.
1: Hmm. I want to ask you a couple of things about that. Uh, the typical model for law firms is to bill for your time. So I would imagine when lawyers think about this kind of branching off, which is a natural effect of law firms, right? You have law firms that kind of encrust themselves in their reputation. They have very senior partners. They bring out apprentices. Mm-hmm. There's people who want to branch off, start a new firm. As that happens, that definitely s- specializes in certain niches, blockchain being a big one. Were you debating seriously at that time to build out uh, like a, a large scale blockchain law firm? Or was that just not in the cards? Mm,
2: not really. So uh, first of all, I didn't have quite the experience to really start building out the law firm by itself. I think that um, my resume didn't warrant really, um, the seniority that I would have to attract. Plus, at the same time, you're always going to be limited to the time of those persons that you involve within this effort. And at the time, um, at one of the law firms that I did an internship before that, some of the partners there, uh, decided to branch off also into their own life law firm, really with a focus on blockchain. And for, to me, that was a moment where considered the opportunity to really build up my career that way but really the thing that i loved was just getting involved grassroots level with developers and geeking out about crypto models tokenomics uh, being able to think about how you can actually deploy that deploy certain blockchain based business models in a way that doesn't you know go contrary to every belief about securities markets ever because you forgot it you know, this was also around the ICO boom. Um, and in those days, there was a lot of nonsense flying around space um, and a lot of, um, <laughs> let's say, risk-tolerant uh, businesses also. Um, so I thought, well, actually, I would love to get involved with those projects that take a slightly smarter approach around compliance, really taking an ex-ante approach instead of this exposed approach, which a lot of even big projects in the space used to do. Um but to me starting my own law firm and building that out, it seemed like would always be limited by the constraints of time. It's just by definition not scalable.
1: And, and so the uh, strategy with on ramper is what exactly? How did how did you go from doing consultancy, crypto consultancy with with these companies to then say this is the business model and, and what is the business model exactly?
2: Yeah, sure. So um when we started building in space we originally started building for uh subsidized by parties like binance and neo um neo at the time being the main competitor to ethereum in terms of smart contracting blockchain this was right after they rebranded from land shares. um and we started building a number of things one of them being this cross-chain bridge that uh, was supposed to um, bring smart contracts to Binance Chain, which didn't have smart contracts at the time. Uh, and the other one was a embeddable wallet. And it's really the second one that gave us the view of, actually, there's a bigger or a more urgent problem here to, to solve. What NeoLogin was called, this embeddable wallet did, was... Provide any debt, any NFT marketplace, which, to be honest, at that time didn't really exist. um, But any decentralized application, the ability to onboard users with a Web2 native flow, right? Just a login, creation of a password. But what we would do on the back end was create a wallet for based on that. And their credentials were then used to decrypt this wallet and actually use it. And that was really cool. But the feedback from the market that we got was, well, this is really cool, but now we've got wallet creation, which is great, right? Because now new users can get started with crypto, but they don't have crypto. (laughs) So now they have a wallet, but we still have to send them away to Binance or Coinbase to buy crypto and then send that crypto to that wallet and then use the debt. So taking that as starting point, we said, well, okay, clearly it's very important for users to be able to buy on platform any platform and to all of these platforms that on ramping really that fiat crypto step is essentially equal to user onboarding at that point right because 95 percent of the population doesn't have crypto so they need to get that on the application itself and Then you run into what any crypto platform at some point runs into is how do you make that possible Now, option one, most obvious, is just sell users, sell crypto to your users, right? But the big problem there is that this conversion between fiat and crypto is highly regulated. Um, This is the attachment point for KYC and AML regulations, which means that if you sell crypto in that sense, you will need to um, get the right licenses for it in every jurisdiction where you operate and start doing these risk-based customer due diligence checks. And as a crypto platform, you generally operate globally, which means a ton of overhead. right? Now, from my legal background, everything aside myself said, well, maybe not the right approach there. That seems like something that's actually very hard to do. So instead, what you do as a crypto platform still is you go out and you look for a third-party solution that does want to take this legal burden this fiat-to-crypto conversion. And we call these parties fiat on-ramps. Now, to us, that was like, yes, let's go for it. And then we went out and started working with these fiat on-ramps. And for every fiat on-ramps, we had to write to them and say, hey, let's start working, get negotiate contract, go through their due diligence, and then one by one actually integrate them in our embeddable wallet. But we looked at this and we said, well we don't want to spend a lot of time doing this, right? But the big problem there was that the fiat on-ramp market was heavily fragmented. We saw we need one party to cover credit cards properly, one for debit cards properly, we need one for local payment methods in Europe, one for Africa, one for South America, one for Southeast Asia, and suddenly you need six, seven, eight, nine different parties because you want to cover any user in any country buying any cryptocurrency with any payment method, right? But integrating all of these parties is so much work, and what we thought we would find in our search for a solution to this problem was an aggregator, right? Because someone must have solved this for for crypto platforms this ability for end users to buy crypto i mean it's the first thing users do this is user onboarding somebody must have at this point already solved this problem of having to integrate all of these different apis and widgets provided by fiat on ramps but we couldn't find it and yeah that to us was sort of the inception moment because it seemed to us like this was trying to start a web shop and instead of integrating a Stripe or an ogen we had to write <laughs> and go out to, to, to Visa and MasterCard and PayPal and local payment methods in Europe and say, hey, let's work together um, and then go through their due diligence and contracts and one by one integrate. You're not going to do that as a web shop because there's aggregators, right? Somebody that's done all of the hard listing, the heavy listing, and that just provides a single Widget, a single plug, a single API that you place on your platform. So we saw a very clear problem, and we saw that in the traditional payment space, there's a very clear solution to this as well. Um, And that's how we started on Ramper. So to finally get to your question, On Ramper is scratching our own itch, right? It is that one API, easy solution. 30-minute integration to ensure that your users can buy any crypto in any country for any payment method. And we make that possible by working with all of the major fiat on-ramps in the world.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And you're primarily selling into crypto-related t- companies. Is that the target market? Yeah. So any
2: crypto platform that wants to onboard retail users. So which first goals are those? Well, the obvious ones, wallets, right? You need crypto to store crypto. Exchanges, you need crypto to trade crypto against other cryptos. But also anything you now see in DeFi or NFT marketplaces. But even things like remittance plays and more and more also fintechs.
1: Gotcha. And do you think of it as... I see you guys have raised $6 billion, I think. Is that right? In venture funding? That's correct, yeah. And the the uh thing that you went out and did is that hard work so you went out and was it contacting banks in a bunch of different countries to set up a business partnership and explain what you're doing or was it licenses or or other rails or No what was was
2: it was really like? yeah so a lot of this what we do really is the aggregation of these fiat on-ramps, right? So each fiat on-ramp specializes in certain regions, but the way they work is wholly non-standardized, right? Um, every flow from each fiat on-ramp, so think parties like Moon Bay or Ramp or Wire, is different from the next one. How they handle data is different from the next one. How they handle KVC is different from the next one. So having them all work within a single flow and making that possible, that's really hard on the technical end and on the coordination end generally. Um, now, at the time we started, also the API documentation was still pretty terrible quality. Um, one of the first parties we started working with went bankrupt. You know, it was all very early days. And still to this day, it's, well, um, even though the parties themselves have professionalized a lot, the market is still. Um, quite fragmented in that there is no single solution that you can end up with. Um, And even though a lot of these parties cover now a lot of geographies in terms of the fiat-to-crypto capability, covering is one thing, but doing it well is another, right? Um, So our heavy lifting is ensuring that the right party is used in the right jurisdiction, uh, our heavy lifting is ensuring that we not only set up the relationships with these parties, but we ensure that on a technical level, um, the integration of all of them in once is as easy as can be.
1: Guys, So you're checking to see if the integration is easy. You're verifying. Uh, just, to, just to maybe triangulate exactly what you're not doing. You're not an API, so crypto companies can just uh, you know like allow users to deposit money into a bank and then it ends up right on the crypto exchange through your API or is that is that right? Well,
2: th- that is exactly what we do, but then our API is access point to the apis of all of the major owners. So really it's one API instead of ten right instead of fifteen soon.
1: Got it. So it w- did you have to go and integrate with or set up uh, licenses or agreements with banks all over the world?
2: Yeah. So when we look at the Fiat on-ramp model, it is slightly different from our model. So look at it this way, right? Um, you've got parties that do Fiat to Crypto Conversion. They get the licenses and they set up the local acquiring infrastructure. They get the right licenses in order to do this in their respective jurisdictions, they do the end-user support, they do um, the, the liquidity provision, and they do the actual transaction. Right? They make sure that they get fiat in and send crypto back. Now, that's a layer, and there's all of these fiat on but we are on top of them, orchestrating between them, making sure that all of them actually are, can be integrated. So from a legal sense, um, we actually, if you see that the... the um, Focal point of legislation is fiat crypto. We don't actually enter the money flow anywhere. Um, the fiat is still directly sent to a fiat ramp and crypto is sent directly back by them. So the best way to see onramp in that sense is as a middleware API aggregator. Just Uh, more of a tool to get access to the services, to provide all of these APIs, these services from fiat on-ramps on your platform. And it's on the fiat on-ramps to make sure that they get the right licenses in every jurisdiction. And this is also where it becomes very important, right? Because if you're a big, highly regulated exchange, you want the right parties for the right regions. You want the parties that have the licenses required to do this. And as the world of crypto progresses and gets more regulated, um, we see that more and more jurisdictions are implementing their own licensing regimes applicable to such business models, right? So this fragmentation that I talked about earlier constantly increases, right? Mm. Making it far harder every time to to build the fiat on-ramp out at a global level. And that's where aggregation and orchestration really provides an advantage to us in the sense that we are extremely nimble in being able to operate on a global scale without um, much of the licensing um, burden that uh, fiat on ramps face.
1: If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately, exchanges closed, accounts frozen, we're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zen Go. These guys realized that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet. That is fully recoverable, so say goodbye to lost bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download ZenGo, that's Z E N G O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of 200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Yeah. Okay, got it. So is it integrating mostly with open APIs or will you have some sort of proprietary permission to build on top of private APIs with the banks?
2: Yeah, so we we partner up uh, with every one of these on-ramps. So we work... Uh, to ensure that we get the right relationships in place. Uh, We work to ensure that we send the transaction volumes from end users uh, to them, or essentially the user sends it to them, to be correct. Um, And um, I don't know if I fully answered your question there, actually. Well,
1: yeah, this is what I'm trying to ask is, okay, so you're sitting around the table, you say we want to make it easier for banks and these crypto companies to connect to each other to allow their users, the crypto company users to send money from their bank accounts into the cryptocurrency project. Now, in order to make that easier, you at we use this word aggregate, but aggregate is you build out the API endpoints mm-hmm. all in one place and then allow the crypto company to integrate just with you guys and then it's like a train station. It's like all the trains come to the train station and then you're mm-hmm. you're basically saying okay, get on this train and then you go to this bank and v- back from this bank with the money so that's how i think about it and i'm, I'm wondering if you if you uh, what kind of work went into that if it was just like okay banks have their api docs we just connect to those and it's just like a you know a, a blitz to get into a hundred banks or if what that process was like on the banks
2: um, well, on the bank side, we don't, we don't directly work with any banks. We rely on the infrastructure of fiat on-ramps. So every fiat on-ramp needs to make sure. So so the fiat on-ramp really takes the fiat, right, from mm-hmm. the user, then they convert it into crypto, and they send the user to the crypto's wallet address,
1: which can be from the crypto and, app. So, and so this is, this is now you're talking about, uh, so let's just a simple example. I have a Chase Bank account. And I, I'm using, um, you know, uh, some DeFi, some product out there that I want, like crypto mm-hmm. in. D- mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what are the what are the players along that line from bank to Bitcoin? Yeah, sure.
2: Um, so it depends on your payment methods first, right? Um, so you're in the U.S., right? Um, so you might be using your credit card or ACH, maybe. Um, to move your money, right? So on a, let's say you're using credit card, which a lot of users um, prefer. So when you use a credit card, um, essentially what you're saying is, oh, I want to send money somewhere. And then in the middle, there's banks that make sure that this happens, right? So you have a bank, um, but then your money goes through what we call acquiring bank in order to move to the eventual end destination um so acquiring banks generally provide this acquiring capabilities uh in order to make sure that this is possible and then another player within that is of course the scheme right the Mm -hmm. the credit card scheme so if you're using visa cards you're using visa uh rails if you're using moss card etc um so that's essentially um the infrastructure uh layer that fiat on ramps Tend to build out, and they can do this directly, or they might work with payment service processors um, in the middle. Um, so it gets, you know, layer by layer more complex in that sense because PSPs like to also um, aggregate by themselves. Um, Got it. But if you use ACH, ACH is this sort of protocol agreed upon in the US between banks uh, that allows for money to. Move in a more direct sense without hitting these schemes, as far as I'm aware. Um, But then, um, yeah, the disadvantage might be you know, it can take a while, it can take between two and five days eventually with ACH. Yeah. Um, And generally, we see that crypto users do not like to wait for such uh, time windows.
1: Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, cool. So when you started this, it was you, uh, this is obviously a very technical lift uh, and you have more of a legal background. Was there someone you met who it connected with and said like, okay, we have to start this business or had you been like, did you hire a dev shop to build out the prototype or learn code or how, what was that early bi- product building process like? So
2: um, in the beginning, well, I met a few guys and we really hit it off. Yeah. Um, on a few ideas now in the beginning that was really on this level of hey actually we can make a protocol to have blockchains talk to each other to ensure even the movement of assets between chains and again this was like 2018 so it was the space wasn't as advanced in terms of cross-chain bridging as this today not that today is great but um that's really where we started hitting it off and i had a lot of ideas around how well, mostly also where to do this and how to you know, monetize around that and how to build a business model around that. Some of my co funds had really great ideas about the technical implementation. How did you meet so them? I definitely uh, was very lucky to meet them in a sense um, as we hit it off originally on a hackathon. So I went to a mm. bunch of hackathons just to learn more about space, right? To get deeper involved, uh, to meet. People to build relationships. And then one hackathon, we were building this very early DAO, sort of... Well, when we say early DAO, you can go back to DDAO, so I guess it wasn't that early. But we were building this this DAO concept uh, for public goods management or something like that. But we just couldn't stop thinking about cross-chain interoperability. Mm. We, we, We definitely couldn't even deliver on the challenge of that hackathon just because of this that we did and we placed four for something but um yeah from that point we were pretty obsessed by this concept and we started building after you know just talking here and there over discord uh, over the next
1: few months did you guys meet a person at a hackathon or was it remote yeah yeah in
2: person definitely
1: Got it. And are you guys a so local a team? Um, no. So
2: uh, my original co-founders were Spanish. Um, so we met up in a hackathon here in Groningen, which is uh, the most, most Dutch name for a city. I think you'll hear. Um, and. Yeah, so we started off building remotely. It wasn't like we moved into a, a single apartment at that time straight away or anything like that. It was only later that we uh, yeah, all started. Um, we all moved to Amsterdam in order to
1: set up shop Hmm. Interesting. And w- w- where do you think crypto uh, is currently most blocked? Where do you think uh, innovation is stifled the most? Is it on... A regulatory ambiguity or regulatory bad decisions—is uh, it on? Do you see it on like a technical integration level, um, political level, uh, something else that comes to mind?
2: Yeah, that's a very, very good and broad question. Um, I think the user experience of crypto is still very, very, very <laughs> leaves a lot to be desired. Right? we still sort of have this space built for nerds by nerds with all love and good intentions, but when I try to get my grandma to use a uh, yield aggregator, you can forget about it right so I think in order for blockchain to and crypto to to make it more towards that early maturity right I think there's a lot to be done on u x end, and in fact, I don't think we've progressed much on the u x end um, over the last years, we have done so in the custodial sense of the world, but the custodial sense while making sense for a lot of users doesn't fully encompass the ideals of the crypto space. So I think for crypto to go mainstream, we need to get rid and abstract away all complexity around even the crypto terminology, right? I can't have to explain private keys or mnemonic phrases to, to, to my grandma which is my personal bar of have we made it (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a space. So um, there's a lot to be done there. I think if if this space is going to go mainstream, then it needs to be as easy as Web 2 with the advantages in UX of Web 3. Because at the same time, while there's too much complexity still around getting started, once you're in, and we all know this, You can do some really cool stuff and really quick time windows, right? You can get flash loans of 300 million without having collateral to back it up. Um, just by virtue of proving that you can pay it back in the same transaction, which in the traditional realm of obviously would be completely unheard of, unheard of, right? So there's also huge UI and UX improvements that can be made, but right now they're mainly for for the more technologically gifted.
1: <laughs> Wait, uh, you, you, I, just to rewind that a little bit, you said you can get a $350 million un, uncollateralized flash loan. What, what does that mean? And
2: wh- yeah, so flash loans are this pretty interesting innovation that I think originally, um, came from the camp of Aave, but I might be wrong about that and have some crypto, crypto fanatics uh, correcting me here. Um, so flash loan is really interesting. Essentially flash loan is saying well if we build a protocol where people provide liquidity into the protocol and then tell other people hey you can make use of this liquidity for a very small percentage uh, fee um, then we can do some awesome stuff. But you can only use it and here's the kicker if within the same transaction where you use it, you immediately pay it back too. And it has to be provable that you both loan and pay back within that transaction. Otherwise, this never happens. So by doing so, you can essentially have a way where anyone, no matter how rich or what their credit score is, get access to very large amounts of capital um, as long as mathematically they can prove that they instantly get their money back in where it came from now that's a really cool concept a really cool building block for the crypto space in practice you see this mostly being used for weird arbitrage plays and stuff like that um and sometimes some exploits but conceptually it's extremely strong because what it proves is that we as a space can build things that completely puts the world upside down in terms of UX. Try to get a loan of 300 million, no matter your credit score, <laughs> from a bank. And it's going to be very interesting. And even if you have all of the liquidity to back that up, to collateralize such a thing if, if required, then it's going to take many months and great relationships. right? Um, so it's just one example of how UX can actually be better in a financial sense.
1: In that in that case that you're describing, you would have to have at least $300 million to get a $300 million loan, right? Which is not typically it, how loans work in, in the traditional finance world.
2: Well, no, sure. But I'm just using it as an example, right? Um, so in traditional finance world, uh, it's all about essentially credit worthiness and mm-hmm. uh, name, reputation, um, contracts, to ensure that things like this can happen and counterparty risk is taken care of. But what we do here in the crypto space then is say, well, what if we just completely cover counterparty risk, abstracted away by virtue of code, right? Where code, in essence, replaces the role um, provided by both contract law and trusted intermediaries in order to achieve such things. Um, And I think that conceptually is very strong. Mm.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I even just providing the, like you said, the blocks to be able to do things that you wouldn't be able to do in the traditional finance world. You know, I don't, I do think there's a massive gap there in that you can't actually take a loan out uh, based on credit in the DeFi world, which would be amazing if you could, but a lot of things have to happen in order to take a genuine loan out without putting a hundred percent collateral uh, up for that loan.
2: Yes, and we've seen instances where um, under-collateralized systems um, aren't designed in a proper way that uh, end up collapsing, right, with the wrong sort of yeah, primitives behind it. It's But this is also a, a period of experimentation. Now, we sadly do experiment, usually with too much money without auditing enough, but <laughs> there's still something to be said for Uh, allowing experimentation and innovation to run its course in that sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. agreed, agreed. I mean, I I do think the harder these lessons are, the more they stick in the collective consciousness and the more there's a learning extracted from that.
2: Mm -hmm. No, 100%. It's it's also funny because sometimes, I mean, I I do hope that for a while at least the space gives up on on the collateralized stablecoins, for example. Which, with, with Luna as a major example, um, should, uh, or use to, I should say, when we reference stable should hopefully allow for some more common sense and more diligence in how we experiment, right? Um, because, sadly, a lot of um, such experiments are ran in a way where it works until it doesn't, which... You know, <laughs> I love the term the term, uh, Ponzi-nomics, which you uh, sometimes hear in this space. It definitely still applies, right? And then sometimes people like to bring up arguments around, but, you know, if everybody would stop believing in uh, the dollar, then it would also collapse. I would be like, yeah, yeah, sure, but dollar is legal tender, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can pay taxes with it, which
1: also matters, How is the dollar? How is the sentiment for the dollar seen, in your perspective, in across Europe or other parts of the world that are not, you know, that are using the dollar? But it's really, like, to what extent is the dollar influential and used in business practices? And how is that changing?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a
1: great question. Now, I do
2: not necessarily have the business insight going back over an extended period to say how things have changed. And I also don't necessarily have the macroeconomic background, but what is very interesting in my opinion is that the dollar has always acted as a reserve currency, right? So in a lot of high inflation countries, access to the dollar is fantastic. And people are willing to pay a fat premium in some cases to get that dollar. And this is something where I think there's a really cool use case in crypto too. um, Because... Essentially, what some companies do, like Circle, if you use DC, um, or even Tether, you, know, you can have whole conversations around that, um, is take this concept of the dollar and access to the dollar and magnify it. Because if your country, for example, is plagued, Sri Lanka right now is a great example, plagued by huge inflation in terms of your currency then you would love to access the dollar, but what if the government tries to minimize outflows and thereby uh, make this very hard? Then it is very cool that via crypto, you can now get access to the dollar on chain or at least a one-to-one equivalent of the dollar, as long as it's fully collateralized, um, and thereby protect against economic forces that you can't influence as an individual. so that's one thing I would say to that. The second thing, and th- this is a really interesting data point. So again, I don't necessarily have the historic view of, of payments and business worldwide over the last 10 years. But what I do see is this. We allow the clients that integrate on Member, right? Um, they can set a fee on every transaction. So if you as a crypto platform want... Um, to take 1% of every transaction of the end users, we can make that possible. And then we also give a choice. How do you want this 1% to be paid out? Do you want to have this via wire transfer, or do you want to have this paid in a stable on the blockchain? Now, guess how the percentage of of businesses that actually choose for the ladder? Because it might surprise you, and by asking the question in this way, I might ruin it for you. it's none it's a good you covered the spectrum definitely yeah no it's a good 85 percent which is a very interesting data point. now of course of course these are crypto platforms by nature so they all have the knowledge and the, the the architectural setup to to be able to take um stable coins as payment but once Onboarded within the stablecoin ecosystem, therefore, eighty percent, eighty-five percent of um, businesses choose actually prefer that over traditional payment rails, right? Mm. Which I didn't expect at all, um, but it does make sense in terms of speed of execution, in terms of transaction costs. Um, yeah, it's, uh, what do they
1: prefer? Sorry, the, the the crypto companies are preferring the users are preferring to deposit money in USD. No,
2: so no no so so the crypto companies we we pay crypto companies right they if they set a commission we pay that commission out to them
1: mm-hmm. and
2: they prefer to be paid in a stablecoin on the blockchain as opposed to wire transfers.
1: Oh okay. And that seems intuitive to me. Does that seem surprising?
2: Well, to me it was slightly surprising. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um I think 85% is a huge number. Um and I think that stablecoins increasingly for B2B payments, especially on an international scale, will start playing a bigger and bigger role into the future.
1: Yeah, yeah. These insights are worth anything. <laughs> yeah, for sure. they're the lo- That's the lowest hanging fruit for the transaction from the offline world to the on-chain world, which is take what already people are doing, which is moving USD around, putting it on-chain in a verifiable, trustworthy source. And that is, if you can get there, then you can easily move around in the crypto world. But like moving between dimensions, getting into the crypto world in the first place is the hard mm-hmm. part. So that's, that, I, I view it's like, you could almost say stable coins are a gateway drug where they get people in the game and then they start moving around once they're in there.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's actually, they, they actually originally um, were created also to allow easier, transition between these two worlds by sort of faking one of them right mm. um, so the idea was a lot of crypto platforms don't want to have fiat currencies euro dollar on their platform but a lot of users do want to be able to flee to fiat currencies so how do you solve that well that's how, where stable coins came from but i 100 percent agree with you once businesses are in the ecosystem and you know familiar with stable coins especially for international payments, they will use that and generally prefer that. But the gap to actually get there is large, right? Because there's so much, at least perceived complexity, but also just complexity in terms of how do you ensure safety of funds? How do you manage your own funds? But their custodial um, solutions are um, probably, you know, the thing that make companies more at ease, Hmm. Especially if you can insure deposits in the custodial system or something like that.
0: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: uh for for wallets for companies uh, you know it's not that dissimilar from a bank or in a bank account if you have a business bank account there might be two keys or so to make a, a wire transaction like if a company say you know a 100 million dollar company wanted to move 5 million dollars in cash from you know their bank account to their vendor or something then there would have to be a a uh, double opt in. So it's like CFO and CEO both have mm-hmm. to, you know, log in separately and certify that, but it is, it is kind of key based. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. authentication based, I guess you could say it's not really, there's not really a key on chain, but it, it would be a similar experience, you know? And I, I think you could, you could quite easily, I, I don't know if you, I mean, what do you think? How, how do you think it'll shape out? Like how do you think companies and how do you think the integration of the crypto world will really enmesh itself into the traditional fintech world and business world more broadly?
2: Yeah, I think it's a gradual process. I think the key enabler here will be regulation because while the, um, convenience, maybe, um, reasons are there, the complexity is still there, but, I think really this sort of inflection point can be reached once the more traditional financial institutions, electronic money institutions or fintechs, neobanks start feeling more comfortable with this, right? And they will only start feeling more comfortable with this if it's properly regulated. So the regulation around stable coins, well, often, often crypto space will perceive regulation as this bad thing right the the, the big mean government is coming to step in on all of our innovation and everything's going to hell but in reality <laughs> we've got um to bridge a gap when it comes to the more incumbent parties in the world and that only happens through like regulation right because as a bank <laughs> you're essentially in a race to be second Mm -hmm. Um, and this is what you often see if you talk to blockchain teams at banks they build really cool stuff really advanced crypto stuff they do have the knowledge they have huge attrition in employees but that's something else but they build cool stuff but they cannot get it past their compliance teams right Um, and the reason for that is that compliance will look at it and say well no (laughs) right Uh, there's not enough Regulation around this to keep this safe. Any party that we might involve from the custodial end isn't well enough regulated. There's not enough checks in terms of what people are in, are involved, what minimal capital requirements there are, what the minimal auditing requirements are for custodians, etc. So I think once that's figured out, we're we're a lot closer. And then still, it takes time.
1: Right? Yeah. 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 What do you think about the Sri Lanka situation and, and maybe the impact or the pattern that that is having in the world economy more broadly? Like, do you interpret that as being uh, p- part of a pattern, part of some um, understanding about uh, maybe c- supply chain issues related to COVID? Or do you see this as like a more substantial uh c- thing than just covid. Like covid to me is like okay there's a blip on the radar what i'm more interested in is what's the dynamic of uh political institutions and academic institutions and th- business institutions going forward as it relates to like this sort of uh, uh, uh like grassroots revolution in the network state of crypto related projects. Oh man. Um that's... take it wherever you want. <laughs> Give me your high level thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is going Definitely.
2: on? Yeah, so I think this, the situation in Sri Lanka is interesting. Um, I'm generally quite hesitant to speak out on subjects that I don't know too much about, but what I do know is that as a country, they've been rebuilding for a long time. Um, and from a governance perspective, it hasn't the ones uh, that were leading haven't always been uh, the most diligence in their approaches economically, um, combined with supply chain issues and COVID that has led to issues which eventually result in the common layman not being able to have electricity. Now, as soon as you take electricity out uh, of the equation for you or me also, um, you're not going to be happy, right? And in that case, you will get situations like this. Um, I don't know what the role of crypto would be or relation uh, with that, um, but I think that overall, Sri Lanka, the people of Sri Lanka will be quite happy to be able to to push what they currently have away. The question is always what follows it up. That's the hard part.
1: Do you see us, Do you see the world as having more or less instability over the next five years or ten years? Um that's an interesting
2: question so it uh it, it does look like um, we're overdue for a bigger correction recession which generally can come with some instability um but i do believe that if we take 10 year views i think things tend to even out a lot um you know they return to the mean generally and we've seen corrections right now um already in you know the tech space tech talks but also the venture capital space right um, things now are very different than they were a good six months ago right um, over five ten year periods who knows?
1: really. How was your fundraising journey? You guys raised six million. Was it through traditional uh, VCs and the traditional path of starting a company, having equity in the company? You guys didn't spin off a token or go that token economic pathway. Right. Is that in the cards or do you feel like uh, just straightforward company building is makes more sense?
2: Yeah, I've always really believed in company building. I think generally tokens could can have an effect where it makes more sense for the economically rational individual or business to optimize for, for the value of tokens instead of build a business that creates value, right? So you might start to over-optimize on partnerships that you can market instead of things and problems you can solve for users. So that's why generally I'm hesitant towards a lot of token models, Um our own fundraising journey was really us building for a good nine months and paying ourselves barely anything um, in order to then, at the point of reaching our MVP and starting to see transaction volumes run through the business, do an initial pre-seed round. And what we did there was simple convertible notes um, with especially angels from the traditional payment sector, from the credit card world, from the world of payment service providers, especially that last one I found very important because if we're going to purport to bring this PSP model towards fiat on-ramps, then it might probably make sense to learn also from the, the roads that PSPs have taken over the last 10 years.
1: Are you saying PSPs, payment service providers? Yeah, so, uh, yes, the payment service providers. And who would that be? What's uh, some exa- or who have you raised from on PSPs?
2: yeah so that's individuals that were very early with um involved in in some of the major psps and therefore the entire you know road to build that out on um one is more from the go-to-market perspective and another one really from the technical uh perspective about you know how do you orchestrate payments in a smart way um yeah and after that initial round Um, and this is something I strongly believe in, I think it makes a lot of sense to over-optimize for um, the value that investors can bring aside from capital alone. Because capital is quite commoditized. Now, maybe now a lot less than six months ago, but it is quite commoditized, right? Um, So it makes more sense to to raise and optimize for vision alignment for network for additional value they can provide through knowledge expertise domain um then just a pretty evaluation or some good terms uh, got it. of course the last two are important but yeah generally i would say that's a good rule of thumb
1: yeah yeah got it so payment service provider psp is an individual person that is uh, maybe you're, are you thinking of as like an lp this is somebody who's investing money into a fund and then you're taking money from the fund? Or are you talking about like no, so, so
2: I'm, I'm really talking about individuals, so angel investors that worked at and founded payment providers.
1: Okay. Yes. Got it. Got it. Somebody like PayPal, Venmo, those kind of companies. Yeah, the Archens and Stripes and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Got it. Got it. Interesting. What are other ideas that you, you think about? So you're, you're building this company, a background in law. Are there things that uh, you think about more from um, a long-term perspective? Or uh, you, we talked a little bit about pre-show, the idea of things that you believe that most other people wouldn't believe. Um, yeah, I mean, what
2: I like to... Well, obviously, as a founder, you generally tend to think a lot about the business that you're trying to build right um, but one of the one of the things that that I strongly believe in and like to apply constantly and think about is the concept that essentially the average sucks um, and the idea behind this is that um, that's not necessarily a bad thing but a lot humanity generally um, we, we like to optimize for comfort, um, as opposed to discomfort, which makes sense. We like to take the path of least resistance, uh, instead of doing the little bit extra to, to move out, stand out and over, overcome, overachieve. Maybe a good example. So in, um, in high school, no, in university, um, there was this, this really, really cool, Exchange, right? This this opportunity for me to potentially go out and go to Madrid to study for half a year, just a semester at this really expensive private university that otherwise I would never have money for to go. Um, and there were two spots, two spots for the entire university. The university had like eighty thousand students, right? Now, me and a friend of mine, we were convinced those two spots should be ours. We should go, but the chances were very slim, but by just taking the mindset of the average kind of sucks, we were within half a day's work, able to essentially guarantee that it would be us to go on that exchange. And the way we did it was just sit down and think, well, if the average sucks, everyone does sort of the same thing, right? The means is pretty easy to identify, What people do in that case, everybody would write a motivation letter saying why they should be the ones be able to go. But that isn't the most, like, that can't be the best thing you can do, right? So what we did instead was we spent half the afternoon just brainstorming. Um, Then we came up, and this was in days also around Obama's change uh, campaigns, we thought, well, what if we just make a poster of us two, right? Uh, and s- Instead of change, it says exchange, and we use the same filters to make it look very Obama-esque. Then um, we hang them around campus. And then actually via via, we were like, oh, actually, I know somebody that studies there via via. Why don't we ask people there to say our names, Mazen, and uh, let's say Jacob, um, for exchange, um madrid and then they asked other people at university and suddenly we had all sorts of video footage to make a little campaign video right and then we sent that to whoever we identified who was going to make the decision on this we just sent this over and then also as a final little touch we made sure to put that big poster of us two on the door (laughs) so that you couldn't look around it now if you're making this decision and for many years, nobody has ever done something else than just write this dumb motivation that there's not a way in the world that you're not going to let us go, right? And that's what I mean. this this It's very easy to spend a little bit more effort, a little bit more
1: creativity to to do things in different. How was that interpreted? How, how did this person interpret your uh, your, your strong campaigning?
2: well, I'm guessing she found it funny and probably told her, like, relatives, maybe, right? So people like the quirky. People like the extra step. Um, and, yeah, we, we got those positions.
1: Oh, you did? Okay. And did they overtly attribute the awarding of uh, your roles to the campaigns in the video?
2: Um, yeah, I can't actually remember the email that they uh, sent, huh. which uh, I should look that up.
1: That's interesting. There is kind of... Um, there it's a spectrum, I do believe, because on one side, you can become uh, a nobody, right? You're just not standing out at all. And your letter is just like a thousand which, letters. Which, by the
2: way, it's completely fine as well, right? Um, that's 100% okay to do as well.
1: I mean, but it's not if your goal is to get in. So you could view it as like, if there's only two slots and it's a finite game it's a waste of time to do that. So if you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing wrong with throwing rocks. It's just, it's just a waste of time. So I I view it as like, okay, there's, there's a, there's a spectrum, it's not even productive. Like I I would view it as like, maybe you could argue that they got some value out of writing the letter. Like they became better, you know, writers through that process. Maybe that's like saying, you know, if we're, if you and I are going to race or say we have a hundred people race, And, uh, there's a, the cash prize for the top three winners. Like the person who comes in like 99th place. Well, they got exercise. They, that's great. They got exercise. So there, maybe you could argue that, but back to the Mm -hmm. spectrum. There's a spectrum. There's like a spectrum of very, very little effort. And then, and then there's a lot of effort. And on the a lot of effort, there can be a sense of, uh, you're doing too much. Like you'll see this sometimes with founders I'll talk to who are trying to raise money and they're like, oh, I should, uh, you know, I should send a, a giant, uh, basket of flowers and a bottle of wine to this, uh, this, this investor that I'm going to meet before I meet him, or maybe I should just fly there and surprise him in person at his house. Oh, that'd be great. And I could wear his t-shirt. Like there, there's kind of a, like, how would you say it? It's almost like you can feel the the cringe of it where if people are Mm. trying too hard, it's just like dating, right? It's like you want, there's a fine line in chivalry where you're trying to impress someone, show them that they're special, but also not show them that you're desperate. And I think that's the, that's how I interpret it. Yeah, no, for sure.
2: And depending on the relationship between you and that person, it's going to differ, right? Yeah. Because you definitely, I mean, uh, I I think dating is a good example there. You don't want to over try and validate uh, yourself in the eyes of uh, a and counterparty in some cases. But I think I think generally since everybody's quite cautious with this, I think it's good to push the boundary a little. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably realize when you've <laughs> reached cringe territory. I yeah. like that, uh, that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's also, I think you're in a in a good example there where you have probably a lot of people doing the exact same thing without really much creativity at all. And so it's almost like the the decision makers starved for somebody to do something interesting. Whereas founders tend to filter for people who are highly creative and highly ambitious and and probably not very shy people. So they're the type, if you get 100 founders together, it's like you're just gonna get there's gonna be flowers and wine and, and change posters all over the place. You're like, all right, all right, stop, stop, stop. Everyone just submit a letter and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly. Then it's good to, yeah. you know, if you want to be contrarian, good to do the boring thing in that case.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. How about uh, other people? Are there other books or people that have influenced you to a significant degree you want to throw out there?
2: Um. Yeah, I'm actually uh, very... Um, Big fan of long form content like you are. Mm. Um, So I've always found that this may be a bit cliche. I've always found Tim Ferriss's podcast pretty interesting, Mm. Um, ranging basically long form interviewing anything from philosophy to history to. Uh, business to startups to investing just interviewing what he perceives to be great performers and trying to get into the nitty-gritty of how people think and mindset mm-hmm. i always kind of like that and um, maybe another cool thing um it's a book that you might have heard a few times before on your show as well which is uh, the hard thing about hard things mm-hmm.
1: um now i have to Google real quick who wrote that and that's uh, ben know. horowitz Yes, exactly. Yeah, from A16Z. Yeah. yeah, it's a popular one. It's a good exactly. one.
2: Mhm. Yeah, it's it's really cool cuz it doesn't glorify the entrepreneurial route, um, which which other books sometimes yeah, I tend to do a little.
1: Mhm. Awesome. Well, uh, Tice, congrats on all the progress so far and I hope you guys keep ripping and uh hope you have you back on someday. Yeah, no, for sure it's been a pleasure fun definitely enjoyed uh enjoyed the chat all right cheers my man thank you for listening to around the coin if you enjoyed the show today consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend we really appreciate all the support and growing that we can if you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you
3: i